The story grew up in Britain between the wars that the British had ended enslavement purely because of a great moral campaign. This campaign had been led by the exceptionally moral MP for Hull, William Wilberforce. But an Oxford doctoral thesis written in 1938 disagreed. It had been written by the brilliant young Trinidadian Eric Williams, and he basically argued that the British had ended enslavement not through any moral campaign, but cynically, because it was no longer turning a profit. For decades, professional historians accepted that Williams had been right, even though very few in the general public ever got to hear about it. For the last 40 years or so, there's been more disagreement, at least among professional historians. But many still continue to argue loudly that Williams was correct. British enslavement was ended not for moral reasons at all, but for economic ones. And we're setting out to show you why we agree. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. get down to the hard facts of whether or not slavery ended because the slave economy no longer worked, we should take a closer look at that moral campaign for its abolition. That's not only because it turns out to be intriguing, though it was a very different campaign from what we've all been told, and what many students are apparently still being taught, but also because, as we've said before at the History Café, it's helpful in a case like this, where there's a debate, to put both sides call it John's heads and tails way of doing history. The most basic point, of course, is that William Wilberforce himself was only brought into the campaign long after its beginning, and only because he was useful, since he was an influential friend of the Prime Minister William Pitt. Wilberforce was also, in the words of an exasperated colonial office official, quotes the most obstinate, impractical fellow with whom I ever had to do, which was good, or possibly bad, for the cause of abolishing slavery. It's true that Wilberforce then presented a number of bills in Parliament to abolish the slave trade. In fact, 11 of them from 1791 to 1793, Within the cloistered, clubby confines of the House of Commons, Wilberforce was the man most associated with the campaign. And of course, MPs loved to applaud the famously saintly Wilberforce when anti-slavery bills were passed, helped make the whole thing appear more like a moral campaign. But in real life, Wilberforce didn't start it off, he didn't do much of the hard legwork, and he wasn't responsible for its eventual success. Other than that, he was a decent bloke. Credit for the campaign's success should go rather to an enormous number of other people who aren't much remembered now. The campaign, of course, stretches from the 1780s to the 1830s, and it would take all week to go through all of it. But we learn most of what's useful by looking at the first few years. We could begin with Thomas Clarkson, although he was far from the first to be involved. He was a Church of England clergyman 
who was drawn into the abolition campaign while he was at Cambridge between 1783 and 1785. Now, Cambridge already had a number of influential abolitionists committed long before Wilberforce was. Once he'd left Cambridge, Clarkson threw himself into an extraordinary odyssey to stir up support for the cause. He reckoned he rode 35,000 miles in seven years, on horse, of course, interviewing sailors who'd worked on the slaving ships and organising petitions to Parliament. He famously carried around with him a large chest, which had in it not only the tools of slavery and oppression, we're talking manacles, leg shackles, a thumb screw and so on, but also beautiful objects crafted by African peoples which he'd bought from sailors on the slave ships. There were samples of wood and ivory, spices, tobacco, gold objects, leather sandals, bags woven from dried grass, even a small spindle and hand loom. They were, of course, intended to reveal the civilization and skill of West African peoples. Actually, still in the Wisbeach and Fenland Museum, up on the wild fens north of Cambridge, if you're brave enough to go there, wrap up against the cold. One of the petitions Thomas Clarkson raised was famously from Manchester in 1788. It had an extraordinary 11,000 signatures, which is nearly one in five of the population. Another, from Glasgow in 1792, had 13,000. Every year from 1787 to 1795, between 20 and 50 petitions arrived at Parliament demanding the slave trade be ended. Clarkson also encouraged boycotts of the rum and sugar that came from enslaved plantations in the British West Indies. In fact, that was the only rum and sugar that could be imported into Britain in the 1780s. It's been estimated that a third of a million families joined in the boycott, including some who were comparatively poor. In fact, there are cartoons of families morosely taking their tea without sugar. Clarkson was working through an organisation called the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. It had been established in 1787 by a group of London Quakers. Now we know very little about these Quakers except that they had Quaker contacts throughout the country and they'd been working hard on abolition since at least the early 1780s and probably long before. The Society also got some financial backing from the abolitionists in Cambridge. Clarkson appears to have got involved with the society itself through a group of well-heeled Anglicans who met at Barham Court in Teston, Kent, south of London. Now, this Teston Circle, as it's known, is an intriguing little group. Barham Court was shared by Elizabeth Bouverie and Margaret Middleton, two women deeply and impressively involved in charitable causes. They brought together and organised many of the leading abolitionists of the 1780s. The fruitily named Bielby Porteous was vicar of the neighbouring parish, as well as being Bishop of Chester, and was a loud voice calling for the enslaved to be encouraged, allowed even to go to church. Another local vicar was James Ramsay. In fact, Margaret Middleton and her husband Charles had got him the job. He'd been a naval surgeon and had worked in the West Indies. He was in fact that naval surgeon we heard about last time, who boarded a slave ship and was horrified by what he found. Now, with the encouragement and help of the talented circle meeting at Teston, James Ramsey wrote what he calls an essay on the treatment and conversion of African slaves in the British sugar colonies. Well, it was one of the most influential anti-slavery books of the decade. James Ramsey knew what he was talking about. Hannah Moore was another of the Teston circle. She was a writer, literary hostess, very well known for taking up causes. She spent weeks at Barham Court, quotes, slaving till two o'clock every morning. By which she meant working on the slavery issue. Working on the slavery issue. 
William Wilberforce was eventually another visitor to the house, though until 1788 he was much more interested in yet another in a long series of Anglican campaigns against vice and immorality. So who out of all these feisty individuals can be said to have emerged as the leader of the abolition movement, if we need such a thing? Well, ask Hannah Moore, who knew most of the leading philanthropists, not to mention the artists and writers of her day. In 1791, Hannah Moore commented that the real driving force behind the abolition movement was not Wilberforce, nor was it Clarkson. It was Margaret Middleton, one of the two formidable women who ran the circle at Barham Court in Teston. Actually, as Claire Midgley shows in her book Women Against Slavery, there were a number of women who were active abolitionists, giving speeches in public meetings in London. Alongside radicals from this period like Mary Wollstonecraft, this looks like one of the earliest examples of women, at least outside the royal court, beginning to take a lead in public affairs. Now, as we've said, we could talk about these impressive people all day and the many who followed over the four decades until enslavement was finally abolished, including, as we shall see, a number of black writers. But already, much more important questions are beginning to form in our minds. The first is, why now? Why did so many people from such a variety of backgrounds throw themselves into a campaign against enslavement in the 1780s? In the late 1780s, there was an unprecedented rush of petitions to Parliament demanding an end to enslavement. Traditionally, of course, it's been imagined that these petitions were the cause of the eventual ban, but the dates just don't add up. The slave trade wasn't banned until 1807, many years after the petitioning had actually died away. And enslavement itself wasn't ended until 1833, and that was after, as we shall see, a revival of petitioning that was far too brief to have been an important cause. A much better question to ask is why there was a petitioning movement at all on the enslavement issue in the 1780s, and what it might tell us about the deeper changes in society that perhaps could explain why enslavement eventually ended. Well, the most important point to make up front is that it wasn't a new discovery in the 1780s that slavery was evil. What makes the whole history of enslavement much worse is that everybody had known for a very long time that it was morally sick. Quotes that slavery is an evil no man will deny wrote one defender of enslavement in the 1780s. In 1774, a debating society in Jamaica had voted that the slave trade was, quote, contrary to morality. Go back to the 1760s and you find English legal textbooks from the leading jurist William Blackstone condemning slavery in England on every legal ground. Historian John Oldfield pointed out long ago that slavery had even been condemned in English children's books written in the 1760s. Historian Kenneth Morgan points out that many educated Englishmen read the French philosopher Montesquieu, who condemned slavery in his L'Esprit des Lois, written in 1748. And going back even further, when the American colony of Georgia was established in the 1730s, it was supposed to be a model for all the others, and there, slavery was banned. For mm. some years, anyway. And we can go back even further. A story by Afra Ben called Orinoco had as its hero a black prince snatched by slavers on the African coast. He chooses to die rather than be enslaved, and that was 1688. 
It became a popular stage play in the 1690s, in which Orinoco is given a white wife. It went on to become one of the most popular plays on the London stage right through the 18th century. It was even adapted to become more critical of the white planters. So everyone had known for a very long time that slavery was wrong, which makes it even more mysterious that the abolition campaign suddenly takes off in the 1780s. Now, there have been several attempts to explain why. You have to say the least convincing are those which mumble on about the boorish, extravagance, gluttony and violence of the planters. Or maybe it was about the rise of the middle class. Or maybe it was a result of the early Industrial Revolution. Now, there's serious evidence for absolutely none of these vague guesses as a cause of the abolition campaign. For example, the historian Nicholas Draper and others have shown that whatever their lapses of taste, wealthy planters continue to be perfectly acceptable in polite company. And we can go on. Owning a few slaves in the Caribbean, perhaps they'd been left to you in some sort of inheritance, was remarkably common among the modestly well-off. Many slave owners were parish vicars. 40% of slave owners were women. And anything that talks about class before the 1830s or so is simply an anachronism. The so-called Industrial Revolution was nothing of the kind and had certainly not had much impact on British social structure by 1780. And, as any historian will tell you, the middle orders or the middle sort of people are said to be rising in almost any period you care to name. They were certainly well and truly risen by the end of the 17th century, if not before. As you discover in the first chapter of my book... Head over to our website for a 45% discount. (laughs) (laughs) Others point to the new influence of black writers. Now, quite rightly, many of their stories are nowadays well known. Aluda Equiano, for example, wrote that he had been born the son of a village chief in what's now Nigeria. He'd been kidnapped, taken to the coast and shipped to Barbados and then on to Virginia. Here he was bought by a Royal Naval captain and taken to England as his valet. There he was baptised and sold to a merchant. Taken back to the Caribbean, sold to a Quaker who taught him to read and write and allowed him to trade on his own account. Equiano bought his freedom and then returned to sea, working as a deckhand and eventually coming to London and settling in the 1780s, where he got to know the London Quakers and other abolitionists. In 1789, he wrote his autobiography, with perhaps the most understated title of the whole century, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Aluda Equiano. It was quickly a bestseller, no wonder. It's been estimated that there were as many as 20,000 black people in England by the 1780s. Otoba Kugoana was a friend of Equiano's and also active in the 1780s abolition campaigns. Now, he'd been seized in what's now Ghana and had also made it to England as a servant. His book, called Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Human Species, came out in 1787. Then there was Phyllis Wheatley, She was a black poet whose book of poems had been published in 1773 when she was just 19. Her best-known poem was On Being Brought from Africa to America. What a title. Which was widely used by the abolitionists. It's perhaps surprising for us to read it today. She says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a saviour too.'" Well, you can see why the white abolitionists loved it. Sadly, it didn't help Phyllis Wheatley much. She returned to America, where she died in poverty in 1784 at the age of 31. Now, we should honour the courage of these black pioneers. 
their work was probably more effective than some of the white writers because they spoke with authority and from experience. We should also recognise that racism, as we now know it, the idea that races are somehow very different from each other, is a 19th century invention. People in the 18th century accepted that educated, Christian black people were their equals. So these black writers appear to have suffered less discrimination then than they would have done in more recent periods. Arguably, anyway, the people we should therefore celebrate are the enslaved people, known to us only as Blackwall, Mingo, Sam, Charles, Caesar, Chateauier, Duvalet, Fédon, Jacob Kearney, Samuel Sharp, Quamina and Jack Gladstone, and many hundreds of others, including some women, whose names are not known to us. They are the four too long forgotten enslaved men and women who, as we shall see, lost their lives in rebellion, trying to defeat the intolerable regime they and their fellow enslaved were facing. Their rebellions did not force the British to give up enslavement. If anything, they made them double down on it. But these are the real heroes of this story. You can find most of what we know about them in Michael Creighton's book, Testing the Chains. But to pick up the story of the black writers, it's also the historian's fallacy that just because a book is published, it must somehow change things. You have to say that there were many books about enslavement by black and white writers in the 1780s. Many were brought out by Quaker publishers and some went into many editions. But like any book, they were only published and popular because they reflected the way many people already thought. So we end up asking why these books found an audience at this particular time and we find ourselves back where we started. So let's change our point of view. Try sitting at another table. What if the abolition campaign, both black and white, was a symptom of change in the 1780s a result and not a cause. We're trying to understand why there was a petitioning movement against British enslavement in the 1780s and what it tells us about the deep causes of the end of enslavement. When we set aside all the guesswork, we can perhaps identify two sensible, if provisional, answers to these questions. The first is that the campaign against enslavement had some connections with other mass petitioning movements for political and religious reform in this period. Between 1780 and 1784, a Church of England clergyman called Christopher Wivell had organised a number of monster petitions from the county of Yorkshire, demanding a proper voting system, an end to corruption in politics and similar things. Well, as you can see, they got nowhere since we're still demanding the same things today. But Wivell's was a well-organised campaign with a paid staff and a strategy for press coverage. All we can say is that the Yorkshire movement had established some precedents. They'd shown it could be done. They might even reveal a certain level of popular dissatisfaction with the way things were being run. But in all honesty, it doesn't help us understand why, in the late 1780s, this dissatisfaction turned from political reform to the slave trade. A much more promising explanation comes from the changing structure of the British Empire. Here there had been important and recent developments and these turn out to be crucial to the whole story. 
the empire had changed shape very significantly in the 30 years up to the mid-1780s. In the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 1763, British forces had captured Canada from the French, along with Grenada, St. Vincent, Dominica and Tobago in the Caribbean. More important, the British had seized Bengal and other parts of India, enormously increasing their eastern empire. But then, in a war from 1776 to 1783, the 13 British colonies of the mainland of what's now the United States had rebelled and been lost. So by 1783, the British Empire looked very different from what it had in 1756. Most significant was the loss of its key American colonies and the acquisition of a large part of India. Now, when I was at college, I was taught that all this amounted to a swing to the east. The Atlantic was replaced as the centre of the British Empire by India and trade links further east to China. But we no longer think that's right. Important work by historian P.J. Marshall, for a very long time a distinguished historian of empire, goodness sake, I was reading his books when I was an undergraduate, and more recently by Jonathan Ecott, have shown that the Atlantic and the Indian wings of the empire were inextricably linked. Many of the goods from the east were sold across the Atlantic. Many of the enslaved were dressed in Indian cottons. Indian manufacturers were sold to the United States, where there was a fashion of wearing muslin and bandanas and carrying umbrellas. So there's no easy line from the new shape of the British Empire to a decline in the importance of the British West Indies. In a paper published in 2018, economic historian Klaus Rumbeck calculated, we hope we pronounced that right, he calculated that if you took into account, and this turns out to be important later, if you took into account all the shipping and finance and insurance and manufacturing of goods that were exported and everything else, then British trade with the West Indies and the rest of the Americas by around 1800 was worth nearly 11% of national GDP. That's up from 3% a century earlier. Well, by this calculation, the Atlantic part of the empire still mattered very much. But even if the new shape of the empire hadn't destroyed the economic importance of the British West Indies and their enslaved grown sugar, it had changed a lot of the rules. First of all, from the 1760s onwards, there was, unsurprisingly, a great deal of popular interest in this new empire. The new British Museum, which had been founded in 1753, began to display Indian jewels and musical instruments, as well as shells and spices and stuffed birds. There were also objects from Africa and the Americas. One or two London coffee houses suddenly acquired hooker pipes. For a few pennies, you could even see a live elephant in Chelsea. But with this new interest came a new and very public unease with just how all these imperial artefacts were being obtained. Between 1756 and 1783, the British Empire was transformed, gaining, among other things, new islands in the Caribbean and a large part of India, but losing the North American colonies, 13 of them. No surprise then that by the 1780s, there was widespread public interest in this new look British Empire, and that that had grown into considerable concern about what exactly was going on in it. Between 1769 and 1770, there was a severe famine in Bengal, caused in large part because the British had hoarded food and pushed prices up. 
it was by no means the last famine in India caused by the British, a series of crimes for which there has never been any accounting and which caused human slaughter that compares with anything perpetrated by Hitler or Stalin. In the 1769-70 Bengal famine, 10 million people may have died, up to half the population of some areas. Now, returning traders and administrators from India, often known as nabobs, found themselves increasingly criticised for their extravagance and vice. The Indian Empire was in fact run by a private company, the East Indian Company, which had a government-backed monopoly of trade to the East. But, no surprise, by the early 1780s there were calls for the East India Company to be brought under closer government control. An Act of Parliament in 1784, brought in by the new Prime Minister, William Pitt, who was actually only 24, gave much greater powers to the government's Governor-General of India. In 1787, the ex-governor of Fort William in Bengal, one Warren Hastings, who was in practice governor of the entire region, was impeached, very publicly put on trial by the House of Commons. Hastings had been responsible for setting up much of British rule in Bengal, but now he was being tried for embezzlement, extortion and judicial killing. The trial went on and on. Warren Hastings was eventually acquitted, but only after 148 tiresome days of evidence spread over seven years. Now, as you'll have guessed, much of this criticism of Hastings and the nabobs like him and the East India Company was political. But there were plenty of others who also began to attack the brutality of the East India Company. One of them, for example, was John Newton, who's most famous for writing hymns like Amazing Grace. He'd worked as a lad at sea in his father's ships, at the age of 21, he'd been press-ganged, crimped as it was known, by the Royal Navy, but eventually jumped ship and found himself on a slave trader, plying between Africa and the Caribbean. Well, in an extraordinary series of adventures, he spent time himself as the slave of the African wife of a slave trader, before escaping, eventually becoming captain of his own slave ships. When he finally extricated himself from the slave trade, he experienced a spiritual awakening and became an Anglican clergyman. This John Newton had been preaching against the inhumanities of the British Empire since long before the abolition campaign. In 1781, he told the congregation at his London church, quotes, the welfare and the lives of thousands have been sacrificed to the interests of a few. But the ravages of cruelty and avarice have met with no public censure or punishment. Newton was an impassioned and influential preacher. He was a spiritual mentor to Hannah Moore and counted Thomas Clarkson and John Wesley among his friends. So a very influential man. But historian Matthew Wyman McCarthy has pointed out that for all his personal background in the slave trade, Newton's attack on British practices of empire had begun, in fact, with a campaign not against enslavement, but against the East India Company. He condemned, quotes, the cry of blood, the blood of thousands, perhaps millions, from the East Indies. He'd worked with Wilberforce, in fact, to send missionaries to India years before he ever got involved in abolition. It was only when Wilberforce was persuaded to join the abolition campaign in 1788 that he talked Newton into joining as well. Well, no surprise, Newton could write with complete authority on the barbarity of capturing Africans and their suffering aboard. Shockingly inverting contemporary prejudices, Newton described the slave traders as, quote, white savages. The point is that the campaign to end enslavement in the Caribbean belonged to a much wider critique of British imperialism. That dated back before the abolition movement, and at least to the late 1770s. 
many of those who turned on slavery used arguments that they had first developed against the East India Company. And there were plenty of other reasons too why in the 1780s, Britain's Caribbean colonies in particular were suddenly attracting a great deal more public attention than before. The changing structure of the British Empire by the 1780s had brought it under much greater scrutiny than ever before. And now, what was going on in the British Caribbean islands was brought to public attention as never before. In 1780 and 1781, and then again in 1784, 85, 86, there was a series of terrible hurricanes. Thomas Thistlewood, that brutal sadist plantation manager whom we met in our last discussion, recorded in his journal after the storm of the 3rd of October 1780 that the landscape of Jamaica had been totally stripped. 300 people lost their lives at the Jamaican town of Savannah Lamar, which was pretty much swept away by the sea. Ships in its harbour had been carried over the top of its fort. A week later, another hurricane, even worse, struck Barbados, Dominica and St Vincent. 4,000 people died on Barbados alone. In fact, it's thought that the 10th of October hurricane of 1780 was the worst in the whole of Caribbean history. Perhaps 22,000 died in all, if you count Dutch and French colonies as well. An appeal for relief in Britain raised £37,000, along with piles of clothes, food and manufactured goods. Didn't sound very much, but it was the largest relief effort of the century. The government added another £120,000, an extraordinary sum for the period. The appeal was in all the newspapers and publicised in parish churches. Bankers opened books for subscriptions. Towns organised their own campaigns. Donations were still coming in in 1785, five years after the initial disasters. Now, appeals to help the British colonies after fires and storms had been growing in the course of the 18th century, already reflecting an increasing and much wider awareness of Britain's burgeoning empire. But the appeals of the 1780s after the hurricanes, were unprecedented. And they were fronted by the agents who represented the Caribbean islands in Britain and the Society of West India Merchants and Planters. It brought the planters very much more into the public eye than before. So it's hardly a coincidence that the planters' practice of enslavement also came under much more widespread public scrutiny. What's surprising is that so few historians of the abolition movement ever mention any of this. Where, after all, was all this money going that everybody was being asked to give when they went along to the parish churches on Sunday? What were these notoriously and spectacularly profligate West Indies planters doing with it? Contemporaries might also have been forgiven for thinking that these Caribbean islands had already had plenty of British money spent on them. We normally think of the war fought with the American colonies from 1776 to 1783 as the War of American Independence. But the thing is that the French had entered the war in 1778 on the American side, and the Spanish came in as well the next year. Also from, on the American side. Also on the American side. From that point onwards, the main theatre of the war was not the North American colonies at all. It had become a naval war. It was in fact now a long and bloody fight for the Caribbean islands. Between 1778 and 1782, the French took back Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, Tobago, St. Kitts, Nevis 
and Montserrat, mostly islands the British had captured in the 1760s. French and Spanish privateers were also capturing British merchant ships. The West Indies planters and their agents therefore bombarded Parliament with pleas for protection. In 1778, the situation was so bad, the government seriously considered simply abandoning the North American mainland altogether and concentrating on the Caribbean islands instead. In the event, the British abandoned Philadelphia and temporarily at least New York so that they could send the troops to defend the islands. In May 1782, with the war with the Americans all but lost, the British began moving all their soldiers to the islands, even though the climate was notoriously deadly for Europeans. In the event, the war came to an end the next year, and as part of the peace treaty, the French returned almost all of the newly captured islands to the British. But it all means that by 1783, the British West Indies islands were under public scrutiny in a way they'd never been before. Enormous resources of cash and many lives had been lost defending them. The rich West Indies planters had appealed for public donations to mend the wreckage left by a series of hurricanes, and many people with an eye to events in India, and in fact Africa also, were urgently and publicly questioning how exactly this new, expensive and expansive British Empire was being run. It certainly did not take Wilberforce to launch a campaign against slavery. It would have been surprising if it hadn't launched itself. But even more important here is that the American war from 1776 to 1783 had fundamentally transformed the economic situation in the British Caribbean islands. And this was going to prove more important than anything else for the future of enslavement, as we shall see next time at the History Café. And we'll start by looking at the map. Why are historians so bad at maps? I don't know, but we put one up on our website. On our website. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>